Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's the holiday season where wine is often gifted and enjoyed. But did you ever think about the actual taste of wine? Today, where we live, we learn about the brain's role and how we perceive that flavor. And coming up, we'll move away from drinking to another holiday tradition, storytelling. We'll be joined by two Connecticut residents who know plenty about telling stories. They're professional storytellers. They'll explain their craft and how it's evolved through many different cultures around the world. You can join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, have you ever scoffed at the notion there's a certain way to drink wine? Maybe rolled your eyes at that wine snob in the room? Well, our next guest might change your mind. Gordon Shepard is professor of neuroscience at the Yale School of Medicine. He's author of several books, including the book we're talking about today, Neuroenology, How the Brain Creates the Taste of Wine. He joins us from WMPR Studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Gordon, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. I understand your first book was neurogastronomy. Now we're talking about neuroenology. Tell us about this new area of study. Well, neurogastronomy <clears throat> was the um, was the study of how uh, food uh, gives us a taste, and the point of the book was that the taste doesn't come from the food. The taste is actually created by our brains. And so neuroenology uh, had a chapter in that book, and my editor said, oh, please, Gordon, do a book about wine. And so uh, I threw myself into it. And uh, neuroenology is the analogous study, then, of a particular product, wine, and how the taste of wine comes not actually from the wine, but from the way our brains create the flavor. So tell us more about that, you know, the, how, what scientists have learned about how our brain um, helps us with this perception of taste. Well, the perception is what the brain does. And so that's the new way of thinking about uh, flavor in food and wine. And in the case of wine, we have an unusual product in which there's very little nutritive value but there is uh, a great deal of flavor, and that's, of course, what attracts us. And so uh, it's a wonderful uh, uh, subject of study because it brings in everything in the brain that's engaged in creating flavor. And so uh, what I try to show is, first of all, that the, um, the uh, taste doesn't come from the mouth, but actually from much of it from the smell of the wine, uh, what we call the aroma, and that this uh, then is uh, the, something that we don't recognize when we're actually drinking the wine, just as we don't recognize with food that much of the flavor comes from smell. And this is something called retronasal smell, when we breathe out with the wine in our mouths, rather than when we're sniffing the aroma in the glass when we're breathing in. And so it's a complicated uh, new way of thinking about smell, 
and flavor, and that's what the book's about. So walk us through the process slowly, Gordon. So we have a, a glass of wine in front of us. You know, I've seen people before they take that first sip, they take time to smell the wine in the glass. And then how do you then move from that moment to the, the proper way to sip the wine so that you're getting all of these different sensations? So um, here I take a part of my uh, uh, understanding from the people who actually do wine tasting for a living. So you take in just enough uh, wine uh, initially to uh, have it in the front of your mouth, and you actually then uh, begin to sense the smell when the volatiles then are caught by the breathing out uh, through your airway in the back of the mouth and carried over the the uh, the uh, uh, olfactory receptors in the nose, and then you work that wine around in your mouth so that you get uh, engagement of the taste system, the touch system in your mouth, as well as the olfactory system, and actually while you are doing this, you are remembering what the aroma. Uh, smelled like when you first sniffed it in the glass, and then uh, uh, the uh, the vision of the bottle and the label and everything else that goes with the bottle, and and even the sound of the swishing of the wine in your mouth, and so all of this it, it makes for uh, what is called a multimodal sensation, uh, which essentially engages all of your sensory systems in assessing the wine. I'm speaking with Gordon Shepard. He's professor of neuroscience at the Yale School of Medicine, author of the book Neuroenology, How the Brain Creates the Taste of Wine. Gordon was taking us through um, the very uh, different moments of when we take a sip of wine. I'm curious, though, about our taste buds. I've heard that some people, um, their taste buds are, are more refined than others, and, and how that changes, I guess, the, the dynamic of when you're taking in the wine and the flavor. So this is just one of the variables that makes each of us unique in the way we sense wine uh, or any food. Uh, and nonetheless, we all have a general uh, understanding of what uh, makes for a nice wine and what makes for a really awful wine. Uh, but our preferences can vary greatly depending on our sensory apparatus. And so uh, it, we, uh, we vary in the uh, number of taste buds we have in our mouth. We vary in the number of olfactory receptors in our nose, uh, which may uh, run in the hundreds, and so they are likely to vary uh, quite a bit. Uh, and so uh, these very variations make for our differences in appreciation of the wine. Uh, actually, in, ter terms, in terms of taste, which you first asked, asked, asked about, um, the, uh, the contribution of taste in terms of sweet, salt, sour, bitter, and umami, is relatively limited in wine. Mm -hmm. And that's why the smell part of it is so much uh, more important uh, compared with food, where sweet, salt, sour, bitter, and umami are quite important. Let's talk more about um, smell. You mentioned earlier retronasal smell. That's something probably many of us have, have really never heard about for, before. And so tell, again, tell us again a little bit deeper about the function of that when we're, we're taking in the wine and how that's different from when we, we are breathing in. So when we breathe in, we're all conscious of exactly what we're doing and what the sensation is, what the perception is of the aroma that we're breathing in. But when we've got food and wine, particularly wine in the mouth, 
then we think everything is coming from the mouth. But meanwhile, we're breathing in and out. And when we breathe in, we don't, of course, smell anything because we have uh, our mouths full of wine. But when we breathe out, the volatile molecules from the wine are being carried from the back of our mouth up into our nasal cavity and out our nose. And it's that stimulation of the receptor cells in the nose that's creating the aroma of the wine, but that aroma then is uh, merged with the feeling of the wine in our mouths to make us think that the taste of the wine is coming from the mouth. So retronasal smell is something we're entirely, almost entirely unconscious of, and yet it's the main factor in what's giving us the taste in the, in the, uh, in the mouth of the wine. I should say this is the first book on wine tasting written by a neuroscientist. And you mentioned, again, retronasal smell, something that wine experts have known about, but no one's really studied it. That's exactly right. And so uh, here I want to give credit to all the wine experts uh, who knew about retronasal smell, but have not really been able to understand completely how it works uh, and in relation to stimulating the the brain, and to all my colleagues who really uh, work on uh, this from the point of view of animal research and from the point of view of human research, putting humans into uh, a magnet uh, to record the brain activity in different parts of the brain related to these different stages of, of tasting the wine. Now, when we have, many of us have been to wine tastings, and you know, you're, you have the option to, to spit out the wine, because if you consume too much, then you end up getting too much of a buzz, but you write in your book that swallowing is also very you know, specific to the flavor of the wine, too. What's happening when we're swallowing that wine? So here again, the experts uh, uh, have recognized that the biggest burst of aroma comes after we, just after we've swallowed the wine, because the wine is left coating the whole back of our throat, and so when we breathe out, it's carrying the volatiles from that lining of wine uh, up into the nose. And so uh, that's called by the experts uh, the aroma burst. And so that's where you get the greatest pleasure out of the wine. However, that's also <laughs> where, as you're indicating, uh, you get uh, the most effect of the alcohol in the wine you've, uh, you've uh, just drunk. And so if, if you're at a wine tasting where you may be tasting hundreds, uh, 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 dozens of different wines, uh, you're warned not to swallow. But the swallowing, if you don't swallow, then you're not getting that full aroma burst. So you have to be very careful to take enough into your mouth uh, that you're getting uh, as much uh, stimulation of the, of the different sensory systems, including the retronasal smell, just at the back of the tongue, but not uh, so much that you're coating the, the, uh, the throat with uh, too much wine and too, uh, getting too much alcohol. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about uh, wine and how we, uh, our brains perceive the flavor of wine. We're learning a lot about this, uh, this new field of study uh, with Gordon Shepard, professor of neuroscience at the Yale School of Medicine, who's written the book Neuroenology, How the Brain Creates the Taste of Wine. And Gordon, I alluded earlier, um, you know, some people uh, kind of roll their eyes at the people they know who are wine snobs and they don't really see the, um, you know, what's so great about wine and you know, why pay a lot of money for a bottle of wine 
wine when I can get it for $10. If we are very conscious of how we uh, drink that next glass of wine, whether it's a $10 bottle or uh, something more vintage, um, how how can we change our, I guess, our perception of, of that flavor? Does it matter um, if we're paying a lot of money or, um, you know, getting that bargain bottle, so to speak? Well, one of the, um, one of the things I uh, conclude with in the book in the last chapter is what is it exactly that we uh, uh, rate, uh, in, in, as you say, in uh, how much we like the wine? And the answer is that the main criteria, for, the main criterion for both uh, uh, lay people and for experts is pleasure. And uh, no matter how interesting or uh, otherwise a wine is from a, the point of view of trying to discriminate different aspects of it, uh, the final uh, criterion is whether you really like it or not. Uh, and so this then brings wine tasting into the whole area of uh, analysis of the pleasure mechanisms in the brain because uh, pleasure is, after all, the criterion for most of what we do in life. And so uh, people have been able to begin to identify the different parts of the brain, the different networks that together cre uh, create a network for pleasure. And wine is one of the main uh, 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 kinds of ways of stimulating the pleasure centers uh, that, uh, that makes this so interesting. Um, in your study, you know, when you look at um, age or gender, you know, how does that change up our perception of, of flavor? So uh, given that much of, fla of the flavor of wine is uh, due to uh, the smell, uh, I provide some uh, recent uh, analysis of uh, the uh, sensitivity of the sense of smell uh, at different ages. And what it shows is that the sensitivity increases during the teen years to uh, a, a maximum in the 20s, and then it stays pretty much at that plateau until the 60s or 70s, and then it starts to fade. But the interesting thing is that the variation of, in different uh, people in the population increases in the older age. And so if you're in your 70s or 80s, uh, while some of your uh, uh, peers may be losing their sense of smell, you may be lucky and retaining it. And so that's something that uh, we... I can't predict for individuals. You just have to experience yourself. But if you're lucky, uh, then you may be retaining it until you're quite old. And we know your book is about um, how the brain creates the taste of wine. But what about other beverages? We know there are plenty of beer drinkers who may be listening right now. Can they take some of these lessons that we've learned about um, how our brain perceives flavor and when they take their next sip of, of their favorite glass of beer? Yes, you see, wine here is a model for exactly uh, what happens, whatever we take into our mouths. So, uh, I, however, I'd prefer that you didn't let my editor know about uh, an interest in beer because he might want me to write another book. <laughs> a, new, a New Year's resolution for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like a little rest. And, and who was your target audience when you, when you put this book out? Well, that was an interesting question. And I thought at first it would be the experts because uh, coming from a scientific background, uh, I wanted to be sure that I had everything pinned down as far as the mechanisms in the mouth and the, uh, the movement of the air in the airways and the different uh, parts of the brain that are activated. 
But uh, as I went along, I realized that what I also wanted to do was to make this interesting for everybody. And so I hope uh, if you have any interest in tasting wine, that you'll learn something from uh, all these uh, variables that go into contributing to the pleasure you get. And anything that, you, that you've uh, learned uh, in this, uh, this book that you are uh, changing the, the way how you drink wine, Gordon? I keep trying to uh, sense the contribution of retro-nasal smell because we're completely unconscious of it. Uh, and so if you focus on it and try to think when you're breathing out what is coming from your nose and what is coming still from your mouth, uh, it's, a, it's a, 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 a terrifically interesting challenge. Uh, and I'm not sure I've mastered it yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Gordon Shepard is professor of neuroscience at the Yale School of Medicine and author of several books, including Neuroenology, How the Brain Creates the Taste of Wine. He joined us from the WMPR studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Gordon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. It's been fun. I'll be thinking a lot about what we discussed as I enjoy a glass or three with my family and friends uh, this upcoming weekend. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. Now, coming up, we turn to another tradition when we gather together, and that's storytelling. What are the stories your family has passed down through the, ge- through the generations? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. How does the wine taste? Does it sting your lips? What is the food like just beyond my fingertips? This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Radio people love stories, and there's nothing better than finding someone who knows how to tell stories. That got us thinking, what makes a storyteller stand out? Is it the story or the way he or she tells it? What stories do you remember from your childhood, and who was the principal storyteller in your family? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome into the studio now Sarah DeBeer, a Connecticut-based storyteller who specializes in telling traditional folk tales or stories that come from all over the world. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And on the phone is Laconia Terrio, incoming president of the National Storytelling Network, also a storyteller, professional storyteller based in Connecticut. Laconia, welcome to where we live. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Sarah. Hey there. Now, both uh, you and Sarah, I understand, are members of the Connecticut Storytelling Center. Oh, yeah. So tell us, tell us about that. Well, um, the center goes back. Um, I've, I've been telling stories for about 38 years. <laughs> and I um, came into um, or back to Connecticut just as the Connecticut Storytelling Center was being formed. We have an annual storytelling festival and conference, and this coming year is the 36th year. We also sponsor a fall celebration of storytelling that's called Telebration, and we serve as the um, home base for storytelling across the state. Uh, Laconia, um, when we look at the Storytelling uh, Center, uh, who are the people that are involved? Uh, all professional storytellers or people that just enjoy stories? 
absolutely not. Um, I'd say most of the storytellers are what we would call kitchen table storytellers, just telling stories across the table. Sarah and I and a couple of others would be, cons- would be considered professional storytellers. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't volunteer, but uh, it is part of how we make our living. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing, Laconia. You know, what got you interested in, in becoming a storyteller? Um, I'd say it's the idea that uh, I think storytelling reminds us more of what we have in common than we have different. Uh, I was a reader growing up. Uh, I liked words. And uh, I didn't grow up in a storytelling family, but I was a minister, and uh, somebody recommended me to tell stories to kids, and then one day somebody said they'd pay me about 20 years ago, and I thought, huh, this is cool. (laughs) What about you, Sarah? I also came from a very book-oriented background. I was exploring a lot of different um, artsy things. I was doing mime, and I was making animated movies, and I was doing soft sculpture puppets and making baskets, and... um, And when I sort of stumbled into storytelling through both a a library outreach program where I would go to um, housing projects and city parks where they thought kids weren't exposed to stories or books, and then got a traveling fellowship to go to Ireland and met people who had heard stories passed through the oral tradition, I fell in love. It, It was something that pulled all the other things that I was kind of being a jack-of-all-trades, and suddenly was, oh, this pulls everything together. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look back at when you were growing up, I understand um, you were a Girl Scout, and there was an anecdote about the oh, story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> tell, <laughs> you tell, you tell heard tell about that. Yeah. Tell our listeners. Um, well, I loved um, language, and uh, we, my mom was a Girl Scout leader. We went to an overnight, um, and... When we got back, my mom started getting these phone calls from irate parents that I had destroyed their children's ability to sleep. They were getting nightmares based on the stories that I told while we were staying up late. Um, So you had a a knack for it back then. Yeah, yeah. She, looking back, says, oh, that was the moment I should have known. (laughs) This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to two professional storytellers as we get ready to celebrate the holidays, a time when we gather with friends and family. Sarah DeBeer is uh, based in Connecticut. She specializes in traditional folk tales. We're going to hear some of those folk tales coming up in just a little bit. Also, Laconia Terrio is on the phone, incoming president of the National Storytelling Network. So, Laconia, tell me about your craft. What stories do you specialize in? Uh, not unlike Sarah and uh, Lucy, if I get a chance, I just want to say Sarah is, in my mind, uh, frankly, one of my favorite storytellers. Um, so I get a chance to say that publicly because I don't get a chance to say it to her uh, privately all the time. But um, I tell folk tales, not unlike Sarah. Um, uh, Sarah uh, and I both believe in uh, story stories that remind us more of what we have in common with one another. Uh, stories are windows into other cultures, and there are stories that are mirrors of our own cultures. Mm. So um, I prefer the folk tales. Uh, occasionally, you might dabble in what we call personal stories, but 
there are a number of people who love personal stories more than they love uh, traditional folk tales. So when you're telling a story to an audience, you know, walk us through the process. So you, there's a story that maybe you have an affinity for, but then how do you convey that story and, and you know, uh, use your voice, uh, you know, to capture someone's imagination as you're telling it? Laconia, can you hear Sarah? me? Can you hear me, Laconia? Yeah, I thought you were asking Sarah. Oh, no, I want to hear from you first, and then I'll go to Sarah. Um, boy, Lucy... What a great question, uh, and what a, um, I, I would say it's the faces of the audience. Um, I would say I have told the same story maybe a hundred times, and uh, I tell it differently every time. Um, I don't memorize the story as much as I try to image the story, and uh, some images go with certain audiences and some images don't. Uh, I think uh, it's the audience that determines how the story is told. Mm. So do you, um, you know, zero in on a particular face that you see um, that's uh, reacting to what you're saying? You know, I remember uh, 15 years ago I was telling a story to 500 fourth, fifth, and sixth graders in Michigan, and some kid in the 18th row, his eyes were bugging out. And uh, he came in, he came up to me afterwards. He goes, I loved your stories. And I said, no, I loved your eyes. He goes, <laughs> you don't even know where I was. And I said, you were on the 18th row, the sixth seat in from the left. And his eyes were just amazing. And I'll never forget that. I'll turn back to Sarah. Um, something Laconia said that really struck me is he doesn't memorize stories. So if you tell a story over and over again, how do you change up uh, the way that you're delivering it? Well, I like to compare it to the our you know each of us have the experience of having something that um, we that happened to us or else a TV show that we saw or something and you tell a number of people about it and gradually it takes a shape. But if you have five minutes, you tell it shorter. If you have ten minutes, you tell it longer, and you really are. Um, I, I use the word co-creating, mm-hmm. and it's that way with an audience as well. Um, there's there's a certain vibe that's coming off of that audience, and you're kind of riding that vibe. And um, and there's a there was a, um, a time when we that we did we used at the Connecticut Storytelling Festival a number of years that we called story triggering where someone would tell a five-minute story, and then we'd have like 10 different people have up to two minutes each to share what that story brought up for them. And it was astonishing that some people connected to just a, a momentary event in the story, and it really resonated with something from their own experience. And so there's both that co-creating, the, the creating the images as you move through. And I really want to emphasize, just as Laconia said, that I don't memorize the stories. Then that was not a way. If you're, if you're passing stories through an oral tradition, they wouldn't be memorized. Um, it was very much um, taking it for your village, for your people, and making it um, feel true to them. Mm-hmm. 
So without memorization, in a way, you're cha- I mean, the message may change depending on when when the story is being told and and who's who's hearing it. Yes, mm-hmm. that was the main thing. I I think I mentioned I got a traveling fellowship mm-hmm. to go to Ireland, and what I really wanted to get a sense of was how the story might um, change depending on who the teller was and depending who the listeners were. Mm-hmm. And um, and sometimes um, there, are, there are amazing traditions. That there's a um, tradition in Bali where the stories are told with um, shadow puppets. And the performer will spend um, two weeks, a month in the village, get a sense of what the central... Um, problem is among the people in that village and choose from the huge sort of epic of the Mahabharata, the very small part that that, it's like a prescription for a problem um, that um, group needs to hear in order to heal the community in some way. Um, you know, as you're talking, there's a lots of movement with your hands and your yeah. fingers. How does movement play a part when you're telling a story? Um, well, I once had a student who said, Mr. Beer, if we tied your hands behind your back, could you still tell stories? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's Some people work from the outside in, and they um, videotape themselves. They perform in front of mirrors, and they really craft the movement. I, and and Laconia is like this as well, I work from the inside. I, I really go very deep into the motivations of different characters and, um, and the way that events are in the story are connected to other events so that the story has a kind of integrity and it makes a kind of logic to me. And I don't really want to tell it until it's sort of steeped like that. Mm-hmm. And then I just – it just um, becomes uh, – it, it sort of takes over. And my – when I feel really complimented and my real goal is that people don't walk away saying, oh, I love the way you performed that story or um, – but that, oh, that story was amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, the eye kind of disappear, and what really goes deep into the listener is the story itself. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about storytelling. Who are the storytellers in your family? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a couple of calls now. Uh, Anne's calling from Hartford. Anne, you're on the show. Hi. Good morning, Lucy. Hello. And good morning to Sarah. I've known Sarah for about three years. Sarah, this is Anne from Charter Oak. Hey there. Hi there. And she's an absolute wonderful storyteller. In fact, I took a class of hers about three years ago, a seminar, and uh, we exchanged ideas. And she's a very important person in the Hartford area as far as storytelling goes. I'd like to say that I come from a long line of storytellers. I am Armenian, and if you know anything about William Saroyan and his writings, he was one of the great storytellers. And in our culture, uh, it's all about the delivery. It's about the timing. It's about the moment. It's the person telling the story doesn't have that. It doesn't have the same impact. And my father was 
an amazing storyteller. He took moments from his life in Hartford, growing up from the 1920s, 1930s, and would have people on the floor. No matter how many times he told the story, he would be in a gathering. And as a child, I remember parents, uh, friends visiting my parents and sitting around the kitchen table drinking coffee, and they would be telling stories, and they would say to my father, John, tell them this one. Oh, if they haven't heard this one, tell them that, and no matter how many times they'd heard it, they would fall out because of his delivery. Uh, a lot of them had to do with growing up in Hartford, uh, the Armenian traditions, the people, the characters, and he was just marvelous. Even today, many, many, many years after his death, people who remember him will come up to me and say, your father could really tell a story. And I feel that of our family members, I'm the one who has carried on that tradition because I uh, will say somewhat immodestly, I'm a very good storyteller myself. <laughs> well, we're and glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, like I said, it's about the timing and the delivery, whether it's a very short story that can be told in less than two minutes or one that builds up to a huge finish. And it all comes naturally. They can vary a little, uh, the individual story, within the telling different times, but it always ends up having the same impact. And again, it's, it's the timing and the buildup that's not memorized. It just comes naturally. Well, thank you so much for uh, your comments, uh, Anne. I wanted to turn back to uh, Laconia Terrio, again, incoming president of the National Storytelling Network. He's also a, a professional storyteller based in Connecticut, as well as Sarah DeBeer. Laconia, I know you have um, you know, told stories to many audiences. I'm curious how um, you change up the, the story if it's a, an audience of children versus adults. Oh, that's... Um I don't think really there's much difference, except that I think kids are a little bit more effusive. Uh, I think Sarah would agree with this. It really depends on the eyes. Um, um, Lucy, if somebody's eyes are, uh, as I said earlier, bugging out, I mean, I know that they're with me, but I can also tell you that I've seen people close their eyes, and I feel like they've gone on a journey with the story. Um, I think it is a simpatico between the storyteller and the audience, but I also believe um, you, you tell stories if the audience is truly with you, and he, if the audience is not, um, I think your energy is sapped. Um, I've told stories to a group, <clears throat> and uh, they were just really horrible, and I went home and went to sleep for three hours after 30 minutes, and I've told stories for five hours in one day, and I literally uh, could not go to sleep for about six or seven hours. <laughs> Have you had that experience, Sarah, where it either wipes you out or energizes you? Well, I'm going to jump in first because um, a lot of I do have a little bit different approach to telling stories to kids. Um, I, I'm, part of my background is I, um, I have a master's in elementary education from the Bank Street School, and I taught in daycare and upward through um, ninth grade. Um, and my, when I go to very um, groups of very young kids, to preschoolers up through kindergarten, first grade, the, I choose a different kind of story. I choose a story that has a lot of repetition, 
kind of people know about the three pigs or the three bears or whatever like that. And I want there to be a lot of ways that kids can participate with me. So we'll do the chants together. We'll do gestures together. Just constantly giving them a way to reconnect with the story. Um, and and then it, I mean, it really depends a lot on individual kids or adults' experience with listening to stories. Um, I wrote my thesis on the ways that when there's people who've heard a lot of stories, young kids can follow a very complex story. If um, if there's children who have barely ever been read to, they need much more hand-holding to get through a story, even if they're second or third graders. They, and, and kind of a larger issue than that is that in our culture in America, um, we are much more accustomed to the kind of stories that, that Anne was talking about, to getting together with families and sharing, do you remember when this happened? Oh, Dad, tell that story about when you dressed up as Santa Claus and tried to go through the chimney, you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know. And there isn't as much sh- sitting around and sharing stories from the tradition as there there are pockets of populations that ha- that happens to, but um, there's other cultures that where people are just expecting to hear folk tales in a different way from in our culture. Um, Before we head to break, we're going to try to also take some calls, but I wanted to turn back to Laconia. You mentioned something earlier about, you know, how stories have the power to connect with people to show that if we come from many different backgrounds, we do have uh, also many commonalities. Uh, When we look at just this past year, we hear so much about, um, you know, our population divided. You know, can you talk a little bit about how you use stories to bring people together, whether it's, you know, breaking down racial barriers um, or just letting people know that, you know, we have a lot more in common than we think? I, I, two things come to me, uh, Lucy. I remember uh, Darien, Connecticut. I told a story called The Lion's Whisker, uh, which is a, an East African story from Ethiopia and Eritrea. And uh, after I told the story, in my mind, the, the main character was a seven-year-old uh, African black kid uh, with knotty hair. But it was a class of all uh, white kids, and I asked the second and third graders, uh, what did the boy look like? And one boy said he was blonde hair and blue eyed. And the kid was blonde hair and blue eyed. And I said, how old was he? And he goes, eight years old. I said, how many brothers and sisters did he have? And he said, one of each. And I said, how old was his mom? And he said, 37. <laughs> and it occurred to me that that kid saw himself. Um, Jane Ganji is a professor at Mount St. Mary College, and she uh, got me on the concept of mirror books and window books. And mirror books are those books where you see somebody like you, and window books are uh, books in which you see somebody from a different culture who doesn't look like you. And I think stories are that way. Um, I also took a German story uh, that Sarah's familiar with uh, called uh, The Old Man and His Grandson to a bunch of kids primarily Latino and black in uh, New York City. And after I told the story, I said, now, where's that story from? 
And almost in unison, the kids go, oh, man, that story's from the hood. <laughs> and I said, uh, no, it's from Germany. And I showed them Germany on the map, and I said, you know who lived there? And they go, who? And I said, mostly white people. And so two different stories that two groups of kids connected with, and they didn't see race. What they saw was character, and they saw images of how they would like their families to be. Laconia Terrios, incoming president of the National Storytelling Network, a professional storyteller based in Connecticut. Laconia, thank you so much for sharing uh, with us this hour. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear a story told by Sarah DeBeer. She's in the studio, another Connecticut-based storyteller, and we'll take your calls and comments. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're exploring the tradition of storytelling with Connecticut-based storyteller Sarah DeBeer. She specializes in telling traditional folk tales or stories that come from all over the world. We've been talking a lot about the craft, Sarah, but, you know, we want to hear a story. So please tell us one. All right. What I want to tell you is a piece of one of my very favorite stories. It's a Spanish folk tale. Concerns three brothers and a sister. One thing I love about it is that the sister rescues her brothers. And um, in order to accomplish the, the quest that they're on, they are told one by one as they go, they're, they're going to have to climb up a path of stones. And one by one, the brothers call, go up the path, and they have as well, they've been told that the stones will call out to them, and they have to ignore the stones and just keep climbing. One by one, the three brothers go up the path. As each climbs, he hears insults shouted at him, and at last he gets so full of anger, he picks up a stone, turns, throws it at the stones behind him, and he becomes another stone on the path. So I'd like to tell you the sister's experience. When she took her first step, on that path of stones, it seemed that a cry of agony came up from the path, and, and, and it was so terrible to her. She couldn't imagine even taking another step, but she must take that step, she knew. And so she took another step, and again, this cry of pain. And, and she forced herself step after step, trying to block out those those agonized cries until all of a sudden, more filled with anguish than any other voices, she heard the voices of her own three brothers, and she wanted to stop, and she wanted to search for them, and she wanted to save them. But she remembered the words that she had been told, and she kept her eyes fixed on the top of that mountain, and she climbed, and she climbed, and she climbed until finally she could step off that path of stones. And there in front of her, she saw the water of life, and by its side, the tree of beauty, and in its branches, the talking bird. And she took out 
the cage that she had brought with her, the bronze cage, and she broke a branch from the tree of beauty and placed it in the cage, and the talking bird followed and settled on that branch. She took the bronze pitcher she had brought with her. She filled it with the water of life. She stood there a moment. Now she had those treasures, but she did not know how she would save her brothers. And at last, because she could think of nothing else to do, she turned and walked back toward that path of stones. She was so tired, and that that pitcher of water was so heavy that her hand began to tremble, and as it trembled, a few drops fell onto the stones, and as each drop landed on a stone, up sprang a young man or a young woman, and then she knew what she would have to do. And she sprinkled the water onto the stones, and she went and refilled that pitcher again and again until there was not one stone left on the path. And there were her own three brothers. And she led those young people in a procession back to their home, and she went behind their palace, and she planted the branch from the tree of beauty into the ground, and she watered it with the water of life, and a tree grew and put out branches, and there was the tree of beauty. The talking bird flew into the branches, and in this way, she saved her brothers, and she brought the treasures back to their palace. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That was Sarah DeBeer, a professional storyteller based in Connecticut. We're talking about the tradition of storytelling. I want to take a, a quick call now. Bud has been holding from New London. Bud, we just have a couple of minutes. What's your question or comment? I just, now I can't talk. I'm crying after the last story. Um, it's uh, That was great. Um, I'm uh, Actually, we started this last year. I'm on the... Uh, steering committee for the 10-year plan to end homelessness for uh, southeastern Connecticut. And we're using storytelling to tell about all the wonderful work we're doing. Um, but I'm just reminded in so many ways of, uh, you know, what a great way of teaching kids and how we tell our stories. And, and um, um, it started really with Marshall Gans. Um, he dropped out of Harvard in 1964, uh, uh, spent the summer with the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party, and then spent 15 years with Cesar Chavez in the farm workers movement. Uh, and he tells us he's back at Harvard, and he took 40 years of organizing. He put it on 10 pages of the Sierra Club, uh, The Power of Story and Social Movement, or How David Sometimes Wins. Hmm. Um, the, um, so we're going to tie that to southeastern Connecticut. And uh, we're rebranding New London as Renaissance City, the crossroads of arts and technology. And New London's going to be the gateway to the last Green Valley. Mm. Uh, Wally Lamb was at the Guard Theater on Sunday, and his uh, book, We Are Water, uh, is going to be made into a movie. And we're going to use that as the, the unifying thing. Um, uh, water is what brings us all together. Mm. Um, a common bond of perception breeds a common bond of reception. 
Well, Bud, we're short on time, but thank you so much uh, for sharing that with us. Um, I wanted to turn back to Sarah with just a couple of minutes. Uh, we heard Bud say that you know he was overcome with emotion hearing that story. Yeah. What, ha- what are the reactions to it that you remember? Well, one of the interesting things, I use that story a lot with um, adults and also high school students, and there's, um, there's sometimes indignation. How come the brothers heard insults and the sister heard cries of agony? And sometimes kids say, well, it was the insults that make men turn back Mm. and agonized cries that make women turn back. But there was one child that I've always remembered and sometimes share this with other people who said, underneath every insult is a cry of agony. Mm. And it wasn't that the stones were saying different things. But the sister listened a different way. And I just love that. Well, we really have enjoyed speaking with you, uh, Sarah DeBeer, again, a professional storyteller based in Connecticut. She specializes in traditional folk tales. We've got an interesting opportunity for you to see Sarah uh, right after the show. Go to Facebook search where we live. We're going to try a Facebook Live with Sarah DeBeer. She'll be sharing one of her many stories with us live here on WNPR and where we live. Sarah, I want to thank you for coming in today. Oh, it was just really fun. Fun to share something I love so much with listeners. I want to thank our our listeners uh, as we close out, um, getting close to a holiday. I want to thank our producers, uh, Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown, our technical producer, producer Kion Wolf, executive producer Katie Tolarski. We hope you all have a wonderful holiday. And stay with us. Go to Facebook and watch uh, Sarah DeBeer uh, perform one of her stories. This is where we live.